0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who
1: are making a difference. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm Lisa Fine, and we are very excited to welcome Erica Salmon Byrne, Executive Vice President at the and the Executive Director of Bella. I'd like to start by saying that this podcast is being released on the first day of the Ethosphere Global Ethics Summit, and was hoping, Erica, you could start by talking a little bit about Ethosphere, what you do, and about the summit, and then also tell us about your background. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me on the
0: podcast. I'm I'm really delighted to be here. So the Global Ethics Summit is our 11th annual gathering of ethics and compliance professionals to talk not just about the tactical components of building and running a good program, but also some of the business case interactions with senior leaders and directors and how to make sure that those critical control relationships are strong. One of the things that I like the most about the GES is it's an opportunity to hear from directors and CEOs. We opened this morning, the opening panel of GES is a three CEO conversation. We have directors that are on some of our plenary sessions. And so it's an opportunity for ethics professionals to hear from those individuals that are so senior and influential inside the business But then you also have the opportunity to have very tactical conversations. So whether it's a session that we're holding on day one on workplace investigations in the harassment context, so how have you changed the way in which you are training your investigators in the age of Me Too? We actually have a Me Too plenary that we'll be holding on day one with some data that we did with the Bella community, a survey that we did of our Business Ethics Leadership Alliance members. That showed kind of how people are thinking about restructuring harassment policies and things like that. So it's a combination of the strategic, the tactical and the inspirational. And for me, it's old home week, right? It's just so lovely to get a chance to see you know, 600 of my closest friends in compliance. At the Sphere itself, you know, has been around for about 13 years now. We just released also, and we'll be holding in conjunction with GES, our annual celebration of the world's most ethical companies. That's an annual process that we do every year that I know you and I will get into in a little bit more detail. And my role here is really twofold. I am responsible for all the content that goes to Bella. I've got a great team that I work with to make sure that we're really meeting and satisfying the needs of that community of professionals that now is about 260 multinational member companies. And then I also work with my data and services team to really probe the data set that we're able to build around the World's Most Ethical Companies process and our ethics quotient survey. And then we're also doing a ton of culture work, which is actually the thing that I'm most excited about because helping companies understand where they have managers that are functioning as really strong ethical leaders and where they don't is something that can have a tremendous impact on a compliance program.
1: Yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about all that. And I have to say, I am so excited to be there at the conference. I'm so excited this is coming out on that day. And that when people are listening to that, I will be having the opportunity to listen to you and some of the other leaders. So before we go back to Ethisphere a little bit, tell us how you got into compliance and how you ended up at Ethisphere.
0: Yeah, so I'm a lawyer by training, and I was a young litigation associate in DC working at what is now DLA Piper when the firm landed the defense of WorldCom in the bankruptcy court examiner's investigation. And I was one of the litigation associates. That was pulled into that team that ended up doing that work. And a fascinating exercise, I brought clients up to meet with the prosecutors in the Evers case. I was next to clients, representatives of the company when they went in to talk to the bankruptcy court examiners, the firm that had been hired by the bankruptcy court to look into what went wrong at WorldCom. And from there, I went on to conduct 14 internal investigations over the span of about four years and got to represent clients in front of a wide variety of different regulatory authorities. And I like to call it my federal sentencing guidelines fire hose phase of of my career, because you end up having very similar conversations throughout the course of each one of those inquiries which is what went wrong and why or how and why will it not happen again how are we going to keep it from happening again and why will it not happen again at the organization that I was representing because my client was always the company and what you learn in that context is the value of a proactive and effective ethics and compliance program on the company as a whole but even more importantly on the individual people that work for that organization. Because one of the things I saw during that very intense you know, period of time and one investigation after the other and often overlapping was good people working for an organization where somebody had made a mistake. And maybe the mistake was an intentional mistake or maybe the mistake was an accidental mistake, but they had done something wrong. And the impact of that on the organization was tremendous both from a financial perspective, but equally importantly from a morale perspective. And, you know, Lisa, you know, and anybody listening to this knows when there's an investigation happening in your part of the business, it feels gross, right? It's really hard to stay focused and it's really hard to do your work and, you know, just sort of move through your day. And so in 2006, for personal reasons, it was time to leave DC. My husband and I moved to Denver. I had really had enough of that kind of defensive perspective. And I was looking for an opportunity to help companies that were looking to be proactive and to really try to put in place effective programs. And so in 2006, I joined a company called Corpedia, which was founded by Alex Bergham, who founded year. And
1: I've been in that predictive, proactive, effectiveness space ever since. Yeah, it's funny. I, when we spoke earlier, one of the first things I worked on early in my career as a lawyer and a law firm associate was on the same bankruptcy yep. on that side as well. So that wasn't a shortage of lawyers and it was a tremendous no, reality. Not. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that you talked about a little bit here and you talk about with us at the Sphere, and I want to talk about that before we talk more about the different companies and other things, is the importance of data and analytics yeah. You mentioned that before, but how do you use those to show the value and to be proactive with ethics and compliance programs?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, And it's part of the reason why it's such an exciting time to be in the space right now. And you know, one of the things that I do a fair amount is I end up talking to people who are looking to enter the space. And I always say to them, this is a really exciting time to be looking at ethics and compliance as a profession because of the sudden proliferation of data that is available to us to figure out what's actually working, right? So whether it is turning on click metrics on your policies to figure out whether anybody in Russia has ever clicked on the Russian translation of your gifts and entertainment policy, or are they all reading it in English because you've looked at IP addresses and matched them to your policies, and therefore you don't need to spend money on your Russian translation if nobody's actually accessing it, right? We couldn't do that 10 years ago, But companies can do that now. And so whether you think about data analytics in the context of what's inside my organization that I can access, the different data points that will tell me where are people going for questions, what sort of things are they looking for, or whether you think about sort of technology-enabled compliance in the context of Augmented reality training, or rollover definitions in the PDFs of your policies, where instead of having a definition section, which you know everybody's eyes glaze over with the definition (laughs) section, right? It's like I'm going to read the purpose, I'm going to skip the definitions, and then I'll get into the policy, (laughs) right? right? Yeah. So you know, updating your policies to say I'm going to take all those definitions and I'm going to put them as rollovers in the PDF because the technology allows me to do that now. I know, of course, not everybody can do that, depending on the nature of their workforce. But if you are in a position to be able to do that, what an exciting time to be able to make something that can be very overwhelming, something that is engaging and interesting and easy for employees, right? So that sort of Let me figure out how this business process is working and where I'm going to insert my of the moment controls so that people don't hate what I've done. I've made their process better and more efficient, and therefore they're more likely to engage with the compliance function. So those are just some of the different ways we see companies using internal data and technology opportunities. And then externally, it's a really great time too, because there's coming out all of this data about what other companies are doing, right? So we share a lot of data from our processes. I just posted a piece on LinkedIn about some of the things that we see the honoree community doing, whether it's, you know, diversity statistics on the board or the percentage of companies that are sharing real stories. We see the trust barometer, right? Edelman is now coming out every year with information on how employees feel about their employer and the level of trust and engagement they have with them. Think about that from an HR perspective, right? If you are able to see yourself, position yourself, and your employees agree with you that you are a trusted employer, how much easier is it to recruit in this tight labor market, right? So all of those kinds of things, you know, that's all stuff that's happening right now. It's part of the reason why
1: I'm so passionate about this space. Right. And two things that came to mind as you were speaking. First of all, from an internal standpoint of talking about policies, one thing that I think is really important is that companies and organizations are all very different. They have some similarities, but the ability to use technology, the example you gave about policies, to be able to target it to your, you know, populations and your individuals, how to do that best, I think is also incredibly exciting. So I think it's great that you all are able to help lead that and also to help target all of that. Because I think that also helps employees a lot or associates or whatever, you know, people in an organization yeah. to understand what do they need to do and how do we make it that they can understand it as opposed to how do we make sure that we've written this the way, you know, we thought we would 10 years ago or three years ago. How do we make mm-hmm. sure that you know, if you can roll over or you can click? I mean, it's great. And the other thing, as you mentioned about external or comparisons or benchmarks, is that This is a great time to talk about the information about your list of most ethical companies. I know Mm -hmm. that I was reading from a couple of years ago that your list of ethical companies in 2016 outperformed the S&P 500 by 3.3%. And you mentioned that when we would speak, you might have some information about 2017 and potentially 2018 about how that's actually happening so that companies and organizations can understand how they really are performing more strongly. Yeah. By being ethical. Yeah. yeah,
0: I call it doing good by doing well, right? And so, yes, what we call it the ethics premium here at Ethisphere. And that correlation that you referenced from 16 has continued through to this year. In fact, the companies on this year's list outperform the U.S. large cap indices. So we looked at not just the P500, but a number of other large cap indices that are available out there. And it's an outperformance of 10.5%. So it's really substantial. And over five years, it's an outperformance by 14.4%. So if you are an investor that is looking to put their money in a company that has a long term vision and a commitment to the communities that they're operating in. What we are now seeing is those companies are financially doing better than companies that are taking a more short-term approach. And that's just one piece of the business case from my perspective, why this kind of attitudinal shift is so critical and can be so helpful for organizations. Now, a lot of people out there always ask me, okay, Erica, that's great. You've got the correlation. What's the causation? And I don't know that we know what that is yet, 100%. It's To me, it's a sauce of... More engaged employees, people who are not going to just take the highest paying job but are going to be committed to their role at the company because they feel like they have a future there and the company's values match their personal values. I think it's a combination of the fact that these companies are on average not paying giant fines and fees. And so they can take that money and they can put it into R&D and M&A and organic expansion and all the rest of it. I think these are companies that invest in the communities that they're engaged in, right? One of the things we measure as part of the EQ process is community engagement. And so they are companies that see themselves in a community for the long term and they spend accordingly, both in terms of time and money. So I think it's some combination of all of those different things, but it's a really powerful story if you're somebody who is trying to make an argument and sort of not do away with, but lessen the perception
1: that compliance is just a cost center. Yeah, I think that that's great, and I think that Atmosphere has a lot of information on their website or other ways to participate, whether it's through Bella, which you mentioned earlier, to learn about all of that. And it will help, I mean, for women particularly who are trying to make these business cases, I think it's very, very helpful to be able to have those different options and opportunities. Also, as part of your research and others, you see a lot of different approaches to building strong ethics and compliance programs. And you've probably seen that a lot with your record list this year of that most ethical companies. You know, what do you think that helps work, you know, works well to build those programs or collaborations, both in terms of what people speak about traditionally or some other, you know, things that you see from your viewpoint?
0: Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of different component pieces of this, but I'm going to pick on two things that I don't often get the chance to talk about. One is internal partnerships. So most of the companies that I know well on the list have very strong working relationships between what I will call the sister control functions. So whether it's ethics and compliance, internal audit, human resources, IT, finance, all of those functions have figured out a way to work well together. We see less kind of territoriality amongst a lot of those organizations. One of my favorite practices that I have seen from one of the companies that's on the list is they actually deliberately rotate high potential employees through the compliance function for a period of time before sending them back out into the business. And so diversifying the skill set that is in the ethics and compliance function is one obvious short-term benefit of that. But in the longer term, you've got somebody back out in the business that is seen as a leader in the organization that has had the opportunity to really live and absorb the work that the ethics and compliance function does and therefore become such a partner for the organization going forward. So obviously you have to be of a certain size in order to make that work well. But if you are an organization that has people who tend to stick around who move through roles, who have deliberate kind of planning processes for skill sets. You know, think about whether or not that person for a year or two can and should have the opportunity to contribute to the work that the ethics and compliance program does, because it can really have tremendous benefit to the broader organization as a whole. Speaking of diversification, diversifying the skill sets on the team, right? This is another place that we've seen tremendous growth over the course of the last couple of years. You know, Lisa, you and I talked about this Mm -hmm. during our prep call. Four or five years ago, everybody who worked in compliance was a lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was one of those places you rolled into if, you know, if you rolled out of the kind of work that you and I used to do. And thinking about diversifying that portfolio, right? Looking for people with data analytics skills, looking for people with IT skills, looking for people with audit skills, looking for people with communication skills, right? That's a big trend that we're seeing right now is how is the number of people with a comms background or a writing background that are becoming part of the ethics and compliance team. So diversifying those voices, making sure that you've got a really robust reflection of skill sets on the team. That's, I think, one of the other really exciting trends that we're
1: seeing right now. Oh, that's great. One other thing, I think we should probably talk a little bit about you being a woman in compliance, mm-hmm. your view on that, you know, what you're passionate about, about it, what advice, you know, it's always interesting you to give that experience. And you've talked a lot about where you see things going in the next several years. You probably have plenty of advice to give a lot of us as well. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me. You know, you
0: go to any one of the big conferences, right, whether it's SCCE or the Global Ethics Summit or any of the other kind of gatherings of ethics and compliance professionals, and you see a far more diverse group than I think you see in a lot of other kind of traditional legal professions, right? There's been a lot written about how hard it is to make to make it as a partner in the major law firms as a woman, and that has not been my experience in the compliance space, right? And I think part of it might be the fact that it's a relatively new space, comparatively speaking, as a profession. It's only been around for 15 or 20 years, right? For most organizations, if you kind of look back in the defense space, you had DII starting, you know, that component piece. But that was, you know, in the 90s. But that's sort of really the growth of this as an actual profession. So from that perspective, I think it's slightly easier because of the fact that there aren't kind of the established old guard aspect Mm -hmm. that you see in a lot of other professions. The other thing I would say about the ethics and compliance space is everyone is so collaborative right? That's been my experience. One of the taglines that we unofficially use for Bella comes from David Howard over at Microsoft, who's very fond of saying there's no competition in compliance. And what he means by that, what I use that for is at the end of the day, what we're all doing is we're trying to solve for people created risk, right? We're trying to get at people, give them the tools that they need to be able to make good decisions on behalf of the company and get them to a place where they trust the company enough to raise their hand and say something if something went wrong, right? While it's still early enough for the company to fix. That's what we do. In a nutshell, that's what ethics and compliance does. And so, as you say, every company is different, but people and the issues that people present companies have tremendous similarities. Absolutely. So if I figured out how to do really good manager toolkits around implicit bias and how to be an upstander in the Me Too age, there's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't share that. It makes everybody's life easier and it lifts all of our collective votes as organizations. And that's the attitude
1: that this community has. And I so appreciate that. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I'm just going to yeah. say one of the things, it being a part of the group as well, is what ends up happening is somebody will share that toolkit and then you'll say, well, this is what I did to work in my organization. And then you pass it back to the first person and pass it yep. on, which is yep. really an amazing experience because you can do that. One person may take the information they've gotten from Ethisphere and say, this is how I presented it. And then someone else will say, this is what helped me. And we, you are able to do that in a way. And then what work that you all do, we're able to apply that to everything. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes
0: everything better, right? It really does. And again, that's part of the reason why I find this space so exciting and so dynamic and so interesting. In terms of advice, so the data piece is big, right? And as lawyers, we're not always trained on sort of how to be comfortable with data and how to feel like we can use it and we understand what it's telling us and we understand the right questions to ask so that we're we're not using garbage data to support something that's really a point that we're trying to make. So my first advice is don't be afraid of data. Don't be afraid to get close to the people who understand the data. Don't be afraid to ask stupid questions because, you know, this is not necessarily our background, right? If you're not trained as a data scientist, you need to sort of get yourself up to speed on how to probe the data. So that's my first piece. The data is not going anywhere, right? This is yep. something that's going to continue. And so you need to figure out how to get comfortable working with and speaking about and talking about data. And you know whether that means like me, you break out your college statistics book to you know make sure that you really understand what correlation analysis looks like you know whatever the case may be it's really getting comfortable with the data the other piece would be understanding and being comfortable with the fact that we are in a dynamic age transparency is everything and you know a lot of the people coming into our organizations right now expect us to be transparent and so figuring out you know particularly in the case of investigations you know one of the things that stood out to me in the data set of our honoree class this year is that 91% of companies at this point are sharing real stories of things that happened at the company as part of their education process. And that reflects a real focus on getting comfortable with how much to anonymize stories, Mm -hmm. how to get your labor and employment lawyers comfortable with the stories that you're planning on using. But the impact that that can have on employees can be just tremendous because you've taken something that's fairly abstract and esoteric, conflicts of interest rules, for example, and you've pulled it into a storyline that feels real because it is real and feels relevant because it actually happened at your company. So humans are hardwired for storytelling. And I think that's a really important thing to remember and figure out how do you stay dynamic and how do you figure out what your company's appetite is for transparency and embrace it and try to be as honest and authentic with employees as you can. That's great. Is
1: there anything else that I've missed or that you'd want to add before we close? You know,
0: I think the only other thing that I would add is we are going to be doing a ton with the data over the course of the year. So stay close to, you know, all of the various pieces that we're going to be releasing We release the stuff that we find super intriguing. I love to hear from people in the community about the things that they'd like to know. So feel free, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Twitter, all the rest of it. Tell me what you're curious about because, you know,
1: chances are we've got the answer. And if we have the answer and I can share it, then I will. That's great. And that's so appreciated. And you know, for all of you who do have additional questions or women who want to know more about you know how Erica got into that field and anything else, please reach out. And I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for your time. I am so excited. I hope you can tell since I keep talking about how excited <laughs> I am to, to, be, that, to be joining you at probably the time some people will be listening to this. And thank you so much to you, Erica. And on behalf of the Compliance Podcast Network, this is Lisa Fine. And thank you all so much. Take care. Thank you so much, Lisa. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance
1: field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.